So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And tonight, we are really lucky to be joined by Gary Huffbauer, who is the non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He had previously been the Maurice Greenberg Chair and Director of Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, has been a professor at Georgetown, and has written a fantastic book called Economic Sanctions Reconsidered. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thank you. Thank you for being here. So let's get, let's get right to it. Um, I'd like to start with a really, really basic question. What are economic sanctions and why do countries use them? Well, that's a great question. We define economic sanctions as the withdrawal of customary commercial relations. So that's a pretty broad definition, but it's withdrawing customary commercial relations in order to achieve a foreign policy goal. In other words, in order to persuade what we call the target country to change its policies in some way, or maybe multiple ways. So in the world of economic sanctions, we talk about sender countries. Those are the countries applying the economic sanctions and target countries. Those are the countries which are the object of the economic sanctions. Mm -hmm. Now, classically, there are three purposes for economic sanctions. And uh, people sometimes get forget about them or get confused about them. But let me lay out those three fundamental purposes. And they absolutely parallel criminal law. So the first purpose is deterrence. In order to stop that country, or maybe other countries would see what's happening to the target country from doing the bad behavior in question. And usually it's pretty obvious what the bad behavior we are talking about in an episode is. So deterrence. Secondly, is rehabilitation. In other words, trying to persuade the target country to mend its bad ways. You could even say its evil ways and uh, conduct policy differently. In other words, conduct policy more to the liking of the sender country. And then the third, is straight out punishment. And I want to here draw the parallel quite closely to criminal law. Oftentimes, societies, including our own, throw people in jail for life, knowing that that's not going to deter them, and maybe not their like-minded criminal fellows from doing bad things again, and we're not seeking to rehabilitate them. They're in there for life. No rehabilitation there, just stay in prison. Well, now elevating that to the level of state practice, we punish countries. Uh, That is, tender countries punish other countries, and sometimes quite severely, even though they have little or no hope of deterrence and little or no hope of rehabilitation. 
So those are the three, uh, three classic objectives. Let me pause there and mm -hmm. field another question. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I mean, we're talking now a week into Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. And Correct. maybe we can just talk about that. Um, what, yeah, which we, we replied now economic sanctions. Maybe you can talk about what we've done and then under which category or categories these sanctions fall. Well, that's a great lead in. In the first weeks, as President Putin was marshalling his army, numbering up to 190,000 men, lots of tanks, lots of artillery. So now I'm going back uh, to, uh, you know, to January, uh, to January. It was pretty evident. He was marshalling all this military material and manpower around the borders of Ukraine. So what did President Biden do? And what did President Stoltz of Germany and President Macron, I should say Chancellor Stoltz of Germany, President Macron of France, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson of the UK, what did these people do? They uttered threats. These threats were somewhat ambiguous, but basically they said to President Putin, you know, we're going to pound you with economic sanctions. The threats were not very specific as to what the sanctions would be um, and when they would be applied. So it was kind of fuzzy, but there it was. I do criticize the leaders of the Western Alliance for not being much more specific and much more public on the sanctions that would be applied. But then that didn't happen. Sorry, Gary. Gary, can I, sorry, can I interrupt? Why do you think that they were so vague at the time? They were so vague because there was disagreement within the alliance. Okay. There were many Europeans who hoped that Putin would just show a good face. And this was just, he was bluffing. And further, Europe is closely tied economically with sanctions. And I should have said this at the beginning, when you apply strong sanctions to an adversary, a target country with which you are closely economically linked, you, the sender, will suffer. Mm -hmm. And European leaders knew that their countries were in for suffering and there was no enthusiasm in Europe for suffering in advance. So that's why it was so vague. Okay. Biden wanted to be more specific and harder. He couldn't persuade his fellow leaders. So Putin probably thought he could kind of get away with it, as he did with his uh, annexation of part of uh, Georgia in, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in the south, uh, south of Russia, there, the, the country of Georgia and then the complete annexation of Crimea, part of Ukraine. And Putin was not, Russia was not punished heavily by those episodes. There were sanctions, but they were comparatively light after the fact. And possibly Putin thought, well, there's another time when the West will talk strong, but act weak. Okay, he 
invades Ukraine and, uh, well, he, first of all, announces he will recognize two new republics carved out of the eastern area of Ukraine. He announced that. And at that point, uh, that was kind of the end of the diplomatic game, which had been going on. Uh, the sanctions started to be applied. And they have been applied almost nonstop since then. Of course, shortly after recognizing those two republics, the invasion commenced in the south of Ukraine, uh, kind of near Crimea, going north from Crimea into cities like Kherson and Maripol, and then in the east of Ukraine to Kazakh. Uh, I think it's, uh, let's see, Kazakhstan, let's see, I've got the name, Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyzstan, I think it's right. But in any event, to the city in the east, Kirkiv, I think maybe that's right. Um, the city in the east, which is the second largest city, and also in the north, hitting Kiev, which is, you know, the capital city and the largest city. So his military operation started and the sanctions proceeded apace. And now, was there hope of rehabilitation at that point? Not much, because Western leaders and the U.S. Pentagon recognized that once Putin threw down the gauntlet, started the invasion, he was not going to retreat, firstly because he believes quite strongly that Ukraine is part of Russia, and secondly because once you, once you start a war, if you retreat from it, your life as a political leader is normally quite short. Mm -hmm. In other words, he would be quite weakened within Russia by retreating once he had made the commitment. So for those uh, pretty straightforward reasons, the hope of rehabilitation was uh, right, right almost at the outset, quite, quite weak. It's not zero because there's always the possibility that Putin will be removed by a coup. Not very likely, but it could happen. Or he might die just from normal causes. What, what Gary, might... can I, sorry, just interrupt sure. again. You know, you, you've, no, no, you're, this is great and so clear. You've written a fantastic book about the history of sanctions. How often historically do really severe sanctions lead to some kind of toppling or coup of, of a regime or of a leader? For smaller and weaker countries, uh, fairly frequently, one of the objectives of U.S. sanctions over the past, uh, well, past 80 years, so it's a long time, has been to, uh, has been regime change or destabilizing the regime of a country we did not like, the leaders. We didn't, we like, maybe we like the country, we didn't like the leadership and its policies. And we have sanctioned uh, probably 50 countries with the objective of regime change. And regime change almost always, I won't say always, but almost always involves the replacement of the current crop of leaders by a new crop of leaders. But the countries in question tend to be countries that maybe one doesn't 
don't immediately come to mind, such as Chile. This is quite a while ago. Uh, uh, Peru at one time, uh, Panama at one time, Haiti at one time. None of those are big countries. Brazil, pretty big country. Yes, the leadership was changed in Brazil. Uh, Vietnam, in the early stages of the Vietnam War, yes, that was a case in point. And there are many, many in African countries where this has been part of the story. But I think the behind your question, Lev, was does this happen with big, powerful countries? Mm -hmm. Not often. In fact, uh, can I think of a single case of a big, powerful country? Uh, no, I cannot. Uh, okay. Even uh, uh, an intermediate country, Iran, which we have sanctioned very heavily. Uh, the sanction did not change the regime. Iraq sanctioned very heavily, but what changed the regime was the military, the U.S. military, not the sanction. That's what removed Saddam Hussein from power. And of course, there are some smaller countries which have been very resistant to any change of leadership. And the two conspicuous examples are North Korea, where we've been We've sanctioned that country for more than 70 years. That's the longest running sanction. And Cuba, we've sanctioned for 60 years. And again, in neither case have we succeeded in change. When I say we, I mean the United States. Has the United States succeeded in changing the regime? And is that because the sanctions can can make the country so poor that people start to really depend on the leadership of the country? But what is it? Why is it that these regimes can withstand these harsh sanctions? Yeah, these few sanctions. Well, you've put your finger on one of the points. What invariably happens in the case of economic sanctions applied to a country is the leaders do their best to rally around the flag. And, you know, most people are fairly, uh, have a lot of affection for their own country. Not everybody, but most people do. And, you know, you can usually paint the United States, the United Kingdom as a pretty big bad power if you're a leader of a small country. So you get the rally around the flag effect, but you get two other very important effects. One is the leadership controls what goods make it through the sanctions. Inevitably, when you have sanctions, you have smuggling and smuggling for items which become very dear to normal life, like gasoline, like food, like uh, basic household uh, items, toilet paper, paper towels, diapers, you know, all that stuff is hard to come by. And the leader controls that or his group controls that. And of course, they parcel it out to their supporters. That strengthens their position. Finally, in these truly resolute countries, inevitably, there's quite a strong secret police. And the secret police is very good at 
and now better than ever with uh, digital technology of various kinds, finding dissidents and imprisoning them or killing them. And that is a regular part of the response to sanctions. And uh, that's practiced in North Korea, obviously, practiced in Cuba, practiced in Venezuela, and of course, practiced these days in Russia. But I was just speaking of the smaller countries. So that's how they, mm-hmm. that's how they survive. Okay, so to come back, people shouldn't be expecting a coup in Russia. In Russia. Well, there's only one event in the time since, uh, you know, Lenin came to power <laughs> way back after the First mm-hmm. World War, more than 100 years ago, um, that there has been anything resembling a coup in Russia, in the Soviet Union, I should say. And that's mm-hmm. when Gorbachev was fairly weak and Yeltsin was coming up and was fairly strong. And the remember Gorbachev opened up the country, glasnost was the term, mm-hmm. and uh, freed some of these uh, satellite countries, the Baltic countries and others. And there was quite a bit of chaos in Russia at the time. And Yeltsin was the strong man in the parliament and the, the generals in Russia at that time helped ease Gorbachev out of power and put Yeltsin in. It's kind of curious because Yeltsin and Gorbachev were both on the same page mm. of reform at that time. So you, I don't know, it's almost, if you can say a coup is friendly or the parties are not ideologically opposed, that was it. Okay. But when we're talking about Putin today, first of all, he comes from the KGB, comes from the secret police. He's a master of using the secret police. And uh, I would speculate that he has triply insulated himself against any possible coup by the military or his friends in the secret police. So I don't know where it would come from. Okay, so then what's the what's the expectation from from the West of, about how these sanctions will will impact Russia or impact the regime? What do they hope that these sanctions? This accomplish? is this is punishment. Remember the third classic. This is punishment, mm-hmm. punishment, punishment. I mean, you know the press probably better than I do. I read a lot of it. People really hate Russia now. When I say people, I mean Americans. I mean Europeans. I mean, British, I mean, Canadians, I mean, Australians, I mean, Japanese. You know, at a personal level, people are seeing all this, you know, these bombing and the column of trucks and so forth, seeing the maps, and they really are repulsed by it. And they hate Russia. And so when that happens, the criminal analogy is quite uh, appropriate. People want to punish that country. Well, they would really like to impose sanctions that heavily punish Putin and his close allies. And the U.S. and Europe have tried to do that. But the broad sanctions being imposed, that is cutting off the Russian banking system from the West and the Russian central bank freezing its assets, that has to hurt everybody and stopping trade has to hurt everybody. So, you know, it's very difficult in the sanctions game to just target the sanctions on the elite crew, although there's an attempt always, or at least in recent years, I should say, 
there's an attempt to do that. So the oligarchs' houses in Europe get seized, or maybe they get seized. They're yachts. A lot of talk about that. Whether that will happen or not, we will see. But, you know, trying to pinpoint the top top guys. Uh, well, there it is. But, but, but the ordinary Russians are, you know, the object of, um, you know, they, people don't like ordinary Russians today. And people are cutting off their contacts. And when I say people, I, I mean big companies like Apple, like Oracle, like Disney, obviously British Petroleum, BP and Shell, and many others. They're just stopping to do business in Russia. And who immediately gets hurt? All these companies have a lot of employees in Russia. I was just talking with somebody who's managing a huge law firm. She has to lay off her five lawyers there. I mean, she probably li likes those lawyers, but you know, they're there. It's collateral damage is what we call it in war. And that's what we call it in sanction. And there's a lot of that and it will last quite a while. Mm. Yeah. Let's talk about some specifics. So there's two things I really want to try to understand. I, I spend a lot of the weekend trying to, to learn about this stuff, but, but anyway, I'm just a high school teacher. So I want to ask you, um, number one, um, I want to talk about the impact of, of SWIFT and then I'd like yes. to talk about the, the central bank sanctions. So I'm going to try and then I'd like you to tell me where, where I'm getting it wrong. And then I have a big question. So first thing, my understanding of SWIFT is you don't actually send money through SWIFT, but it's a way it's kind of like, like WhatsApp. It's a way to send messages between banks about when banks are going to send money or banks need money sent. Is that correct? That that is technically correct, and banking technicians always like to make that distinction. They call SWIFT a messaging network. I, I'm not too uh, fond of that terminology because okay. that, but I will use it because to many people that implies well, SWIFT is like uh, you know WhatsApp or Facebook sending a message about where I'm going to eat tomorrow night or will you come out to dinner <laughs> with me? Okay, you know. It's not that. The messages are very specific financial messages. It's true it's not payments, but it's a message from Bank X to Bank Y to move money in the account of holder B to holder A. <laughs> I mean, that's, mm -hmm. it's, a very, it's an encrypted message uh, with all kinds of security features. That's, those are the messages. Now, it doesn't actually move the money but it tells the bank, the recipient of the message, to move the money in its account from one, one holder in that bank to another holder in that bank or to, an, to another holder in another bank. So, yes. Okay. So, it, so, so you actually so could still it, send it, money, but it kind of mucks up the, it kind of mucks up the flow of, of money. It, you, can't just, you can't just send an email from bank A to bank B because that's not encrypted and it would take a really long time for them to get thousands or hundreds of thousands of emails every day and then figure out where the money needs to go. Right. Oh yeah. Cause all this is automated. When those encrypted messages come through, they, you know, they go through the fancy computers and the money spits out. Uh, but it's the bank does the transfer. So closing down SWIFT makes it more difficult for banks to communicate. That, that is the banks that are, 
are blocked mm -hmm. from using SWIFT. And, and that's then just all a, tech, a technical question. Does, so let's say Germany shuts down SWIFT. Um, does, does that just apply to, you know, Russian to German banks, German to Russian banks? But um, it's, it doesn't apply to every bank in the world that uses SWIFT. Oh, so no. Each, each country no. has to decide on its own. No, yeah, it applies to the name banks. Named banks are cut off from SWIFT. And those name banks are, I think, now about 30 Russian institutions. I see, I see. They're cut off from SWIFT. And, uh, you know, more might come down the line, but that's, mm -hmm. that's what's, what's happened. Now, that's a little bit different than another part of the sanctions, which is to freeze the funds of those target institutions, the funds which are held in Western countries, that would be in the UK, for example. So one of these Russian banks, the biggest is Spared Bank, the second biggest is VTB. They have branches in the UK and in London and Paris, Frankfurt, whatever. And what has happened it's already happened. Those branches, their accounts are frozen. That is to say, the authorities have said, you can't move any money in this in this bank. It's just there. It's frozen like a, a block of ice. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's, you know, that's really <laughs> heavy yeah. duty because even if they could get the message through some Chinese system, they can't move the money. <laughs> right. And uh, that's uh, now been a big, a big hammer on the Russian financial system. And then, yeah. And so the other question I had was about the central bank sanctions. So I want to walk through what I understand and then I want you to correct me. And I want to also ask you a question. So my understanding is, okay, so let's say you have a, a Jeep dealership in Russia and you need to buy Jeeps from the United States. So the United, someone in the United States sends you Jeeps and you then send them dollars. And you have in your local Russian bank an account in rubles, dollars, euros, and you're using those dollars to buy the, the Jeeps. Um, my understanding is that when, you, when, you're, when you're getting the dollars from your local bank, your local bank sends a message to the Russian central bank saying, okay, you have our dollars on hand, our client needs them. But then actually it's the not the Russian central bank which holds the dollars, it's the Fed, it's the central bank of the United States which holds the dollars for the Russian central bank, which is holding them for the local bank, which is actually holding them for the client in Russia. Is that That's, is that's that right? pretty pretty close pretty okay. close you can you can leave the teaching profession and go to wall street okay, okay. now yeah, but let me let me make a few little corrections please do yeah thanks okay the russian central bank like all central banks holds its reserves in private banks in foreign countries now which private banks we don't know that's a secret that's mm -hmm. a well-kept secret and they move it around but you can probably guess they have some in J.P. Morgan, some in Bank of America, some in Citibank, some in Barclays, on and on. So what has happened, what, what happens is that the U.S. government and the, and the European governments have said 
to those private banks which hold Russian central bank reserves, the Russian central bank can cannot use them. It cannot it cannot withdraw from those funds. So what that means in turn is that when a bank in a Russian bank like Spirit Bank or BTB uh, needs uh, dollars perhaps and goes to the Russian central bank and says, you know, here's a million rubles, give me the dollar equivalent. Russian central bank can't do that anymore. It has no dollars that it can access now to transfer to Spirit Bank or VTB. So that's how the system gets gummed up. I see. And, uh, you know, about 630 billion was supposed to be frozen. I'm not sure all of it has been frozen, mm -hmm. but that was the target. Okay, so that's clear. I guess my big question is, why couldn't the Russian Central Bank hold those deposits? Why, why do they have um, foreign banks holding them for them? Yeah, why do they? Well, what would they, you have to ask yourself, what would they hold in Russia as an alternative to deposits in the strongest banks in the world? And they typically, central banks only put their money Either they put it with another central bank, that's possible, and you mentioned that with the Federal Reserve, that's a possibility. Again, we don't know how much is done, or they put it with a private bank, but a strong private bank. Now, why do they do that? Because the alternative, if you want foreign reserves, uh, the alternatives are few and cumbersome. You could get actual foreign currency. Mm -hmm. You know, $100 bills, 500 euro bills, 1,000 Swiss franc bills in huge stacks. And you could have those in the vaults in Moscow. But you can see the cumbersome quality there to move them back and forth. Mm -hmm. you, you, in order to pay somebody, you have to ship those, you know, move those monies to, to another bank in Russia or to a foreign bank, whatever very cumbersome. You run the risk of theft. You run the risk of, of uh, you know, you're not going to earn any interest on it. So inflation is going to hurt you on and on. That's one alternative. A second alternative is to hold gold. And Russia has been increasing its holdings of gold, gold bricks in the vaults in Russia. Well, they say it's hidden someplace in the you know, in Russia, they're, they're not saying it's in, in Moscow necessarily. So that's the second alternative. But gold bricks, you know, go back 100 years. That's how reserves were held by nearly all central banks were in the form of gold bricks. You know, to move them around takes time. <laughs> yeah. And has those same costs. And then what else? There isn't much else. You could go for palladium. You could go for silver or some other precious metal. I think I've got most of them. Rhodium is another mm -hmm. precious metal. So the alternatives are few and usually as a matter of convenience, they go for the, you know, the cash. The, the, I, not, I, should, I should be clearer. They go for the, the bank account in the foreign bank as being their reserves because it's very mobile. You can then move that with the, uh, just a, a message on on SWIFT. And in the normal course of history, central banks 
are almost immune to being the targets of of sanctions. Now, this is not quite immune because the U.S. has done it a few times before, but to do it against a country of Russia's size was, uh, you could say, a spectacular sanction. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, maybe, and I guess that was my next question, is why, why didn't Putin see this coming? And you heard a lot about him, him trying to sanction-proof Russia and building yeah. up these reserves of $650 billion. But if in a stroke of a pen, those funds could be frozen, why wasn't, why wasn't he aware that that was a possibility, or, or was he? Well, I think it was a combination of excessive optimism and miscalculation. He probably thought that history was with him and the Central Bank of Russia would be um, would not be targeted. Probably he further thought that if he started liquidating those reserves and converting them into like actual dollar bills or Swiss franc bills uh, or into gold, that would be a tip-off. But of course, once he marshaled his troops, that was a pretty big tip-off that something was coming. So there, I think, was a, a miscalculation why he didn't move at that time to start moving the money is, a, I think, it's just a mistake on his part, okay. um, reckoning, reckoning that the worst could happen. So that that's as good an explanation as I can come up with. Okay. And then, so if you could just explain the mechanism, once you have the sanctions, you know, the next day, Monday of this week, the the ruble collapses uh, yes. via other currencies. Why does that happen? Why do people try to sell off their rubles? Well, the first thing that the sanctions, um, the first thing that the sanctions do is curtail the access of Russia to foreign exchange because Russian exports are now, some of them are blocked, are prohibited. Now, it's true that in this case, two major exports by Russia were exempted. That would be oil and gas. Mm -hmm. Um, And those are major exports. But many other exports are, you know, not allowed to be sold in the West. And then just to be clear, Gary, when you make those sales of those exports, that's how you gain, that's how you earn. Yeah, that's how Foreign currency, I see. Right, right, right. And secondly, of course, then the the existing reserves in private banks and also the central bank were frozen. (laughs) So those can't be used. Mm -hmm. So normally what happens when, you know, the ruble goes down a little bit, one of the uh, the central bank or one of the private banks would use its foreign exchange to buy the ruble, and that will strengthen it. But in this case, you know, there wasn't much foreign exchange that could be used to buy yeah. the ruble, so that fell. And then in turn, because of the general bad news and and companies withdrawing from Russia and the fact that the ruble is collapsing, share prices also collapsed by about the same percentage. Huge 
So these are huge financial losses to uh, to uh, Russian holders of either rubles or or shares or for that matter bonds. Mm-hmm. And it also seems to me then that it becomes nearly impossible to to buy any imports. And I I guess I understand that Russians Russian consumers really depend heavily on imported goods. Correct. There will be a certain amount of smuggling. That always happens with sanctions cases and it becomes very profitable because once the good becomes scarcer, the price can go up in the target country. So that attracts smugglers, Russians, Chechnyans, whomever. Uh, And then there will be a certain amount that will come from higher priced locations, uh, which are not participating in the sanction. And in this particular case, that would be India, Pakistan, and China, all Mm. countries bordering or near to Russian borders. And um, they're they're still quite willing to ship goods. Of course, they may not be of the same quality and prices still, you know, raise their prices, but that's, that's the alternative. So one question that I have for you is that, you know, one of my concerns is, and I've been reading, you know, sober newspapers like the Financial Times, and you see, you're starting to see these articles or these, these columns, these opinion pieces where, again, sober commentators are saying, you know, we may be reaching this really dangerous point because Russia is, has miscalculated, is kind of backed into a corner and we've dropped these major sanctions on them and Putin's response is going to be using the nuclear option so he's he's already heightened the the alerts or raised the alerts for his nuclear forces how in your opinion how concerned should we be that that his next response towards the west will be a, a nuclear one well, that's a, a real concern, even when the probability is quite low, because the, mm-hmm. the damage is extraordinarily high of that. And I, I noticed that Biden was very careful in his uh, pre-invasion remarks, and then in the State of the Union on Tuesday night, to emphasize that the U.S. is not not going to provide, is not going to be engaged militarily with uh, with Russia over Ukraine, although it might provide directly or indirectly uh, military supplies to Ukraine, but it's not going to use its own very ample forces. And European leaders have said exactly the same. There have been uh, voices urging Europe to provide a no-fly zone over Ukraine, and the leaders have rejected that. They do not want to be involved in putting their aircraft over Ukraine space and then getting into a shooting war with Russian aircraft. So there's a lot of stepping back on the military front. And then I just noticed uh, either today or yesterday that Putin and Biden have re, uh, 
uh, re-upped or recreated the red phone for direct communication okay. between them. And the obvious reason for that is to avoid the nuclear, uh, in, avoid any kind of direct combat between Russia and the United States and certainly to avoid any nuclear threat. So, you know, a lot of steps are being taken, but I, I am in touch with security groups and there's this is a very big concern because as I say, even though everyone agrees the probability is quite small, the damage is extraordinarily high if that were to happen. So it is a matter of concern and and you put your finger on it. Uh, as he gets backed into the corner, if he gets backed into a corner, will Putin, in order to preserve his, I don't know, his place in history, whatever, will he resort to even more extraordinary military efforts? That's that's a concern. So thank you so much for your time, Gary. I, I have just one last question. And I, you know, the, the saying of uh, is, you know, predictions are always hard, especially ones about the future. But what do you, how do you see this playing out in the next couple of weeks or months? And what role do you see sanctions playing in the next, in the next, um, well, in the near future? Yeah. Well, as you can guess, Lev, um, I'm a lot older than you. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I lived through the first Cold War, in fact, the Korean War and first Cold War. And I participated and being a government official in the first Cold War with the Soviet Union. And my, well, let me just say, I thought that Cold War was managed about as well as could be done. But the point I would make tonight is that it went on a long time. It started, you know, by 1952, and it didn't end until 19, maybe 1950, maybe he started before 1952, maybe he put a better date when Russia exploded its hydrogen bomb, which I believe was in like 1940. It, no, it's first atomic bomb, about 1949 or 48. So from then until 1990. So we had a good 40 years plus. I think this Cold War has a duration of at least a decade. I think it lasts as long as Putin is there. And like all men, he's mortal, but he looks extremely healthy. He's only 69. He probably has at least another good decade and maybe more in him. And he doesn't seem to want to modify his quest for a greater Russia, which includes these bordering states. And so... Uh, I think the, you know, the, the gauntlets have been thrown down. What's being done now will continue. The, the, the sanctions will continue. Many, well, countries in Europe, which are not members of NATO, like Finland and Sweden, may seek to join NATO for the military protection. Uh, Georgia, the country I mentioned, would love to join NATO. So would Ukraine. Uh, the West is a little skeptical about that. But we will certainly build up our military position in in uh, Western Europe. It was winding down. It's now going to go in the other direction. So it's a, it's a Cold War, which will go on for quite, I think, quite some time. 